Well, let's turn then to the book of Acts in the New Testament, Acts chapter 12. And we're looking at the whole chapter this morning, Acts chapter 12, page 920, 920 in the Black Bibles, if you're using large print, page 1094. chapter 12 verse 1 about that time Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church he killed James the brother of John with the sword and when he saw that it pleased the Jews he proceeded to arrest Peter also this was during the days of unleavened bread and when he had seized him he put him in prison delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up, quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. The angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. He did so. The angel said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading them into the city. It opened for them of its own accord and they went out and went along one street and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. But they said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, no, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. 
Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck Herod down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But, but, the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Amen. The Bible says there are only two ways to live. Only two ways to live. There is the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. Read Psalm 1 and see that there are only these two paths. The Lord Jesus said there is the broad road that leads to destruction. And there is the narrow road that leads to life. Only two roads. There is wise living and foolish living. But did you know friends, there are only two ways to be king as well. There are only two ways to rule. There is Christ's way and there is our way. There is Christ as king and Christ stands aloft and alone above and all the rulers of the world. And there is, well, below him take your pick. Every other ruler and every other king that has walked the earth. Only those two options. Acts chapter 12. Here are the two ways to be king. There is Jesus' way and there is Herod's way. Look at chapter 12 verse 1. About that time, Herod the king. Herod the king. There, There are actually about six Herods in the New Testament. All somehow related to each other in a confusing family tree. This in chapter 12 is Herod Agrippa. The grandson of Herod the Great. The Christmas Herod. But this Herod here in chapter 12 ended up ruling over even more territory than his grandfather did. And the book of Acts is showing us. Here is Herod's way to be king. What did you make of it? Verse 21. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to starving people. It's not easy to see at first, but there is actually another king on view here in this chapter. Do you remember the very opening verse of this book, Acts chapter 1? You might want to just put your eye on it for a second. The very opening verse. In my first book, O Theophilus, which is the Gospel of Luke, in part one, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven. See, the the, the book of Acts is the story of all that Jesus is still doing, but from where is he doing it? Yes, he's not visible, but he is ruling from heaven. The king is ruling his world and as he does so, his people on earth come up against different kings and lords. They come up against different powers. As Jesus is ruling, how do these earthly human rulers rule? And how does that compare to Christ's rule? Here in chapter 12 is the Lord Jesus Christ being king to his people. And here in chapter 12, here is Herod being king to his people. 
How do they do it? What's the same and what's different? Just as we begin to look at this, I want you to notice something about chapter 12. The the book of Acts, if you took a, a scalpel and cut out chapter 12, the book of Acts would read just fine. Look at the end of chapter 11, verse 29 and 30. The disciples determined, because there is a worldwide famine, the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so. Sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. But now look at chapter 12 verse 25. Barnabas and Saul have been sent off. Verse 25. Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem. When they had completed their service. Bringing with them John. Whose other name was Mark. And on you go into chapter 13. Where in chapter 13 you get the first missionary journey. That's spreading out across the world. Friends, here is the gospel from chapter 13. Here is the gospel now going out. Do you remember? It's going to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. It reached Antioch, the third largest city of the ancient world. By the end of the book of Acts, the gospel of King Jesus is going to be in Rome itself. And so friends, here is the question. Before we get to chapter 13 and before the gospel sets sail. Chapter 12 asks this question. How will Christ's kingdom come in all the earth? How will it expand? As the gospel goes out, what is it about to encounter as it faces the kingdoms of the earth? Acts chapter 12 gives us, John Stott says, it gives us the world and the church Arrayed against one another, each of these kingdoms wielding an appropriate weapon. See, chapter 12 is, if you like, the preview. Here is the first clash of kingdoms. Here is what will happen now until the end of time. Christ's kingdom against, well, here it's Herod, but anybody's kingdom. Herod is a king. And in his hand he holds a weapon. What is it? Jesus is a king. And in his hand in chapter 12, he holds a weapon. So here's what we're going to do together. We're just going to look at the contrast here between these two kings. We're going to look at the contrast between, on the one hand, the servants of God who know that they serve God. And the servants of God and the enemies of God, sorry, on the other hand, who think that they are God. That's the contrast, isn't it? Servants who serve God, enemies who think that they're a God. So here's the first one to see. Number one, Jesus' weapon. Jesus' weapon is powerless people who pray. And then we're going to look at Herod's weapon. Herod's weapon is proud strength and self-worship. Jesus' weapon is powerless people who pray... Herod's weapon is proud strength and self-worship. I think this might need to go down a little bit, Neil. The whistling is now just coming through. What we're going to do this morning, it's not that we're doing point one and then point two. We're just going to kind of look at both of these two things. They're intermingled today. We're going to try and see them both at once. See, one of the ways to read a narrative like this, a story like this, is to look at the contrast between all the human actors in the story. 
Okay, read chapter 12 as a story. Who gets all the verbs? Who gets all the doing words? On the human plane, you have Herod and Peter. The enemy of God, oppressing the people of God. And the whole point of the story is that Herod is so powerful while they are so weak. Right? Look who's doing all the doing. Verse 1 again. Herod the king, what did he do? Laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. Verse 2. He killed James, the brother of John. But look at verse 3 as well. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Verse 4, when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over. It's as if Luke is just wanting to to pile up all the verbs. Look how active Herod is. Look at verse 19. He hasn't finished. After Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. And then verse 21. The icing on the cake, dressing himself in royal robes, seating on a throne, seated on a throne. Oh, Herod, you are so strong, so powerful, so in charge. You have all the, all the chips. You are calling all the shots. And there is no one and nothing in your way. So what are King, what are King Jesus' people doing? Are they fighting back? No, look what happens to James. Verse 2, he's killed. What happens to Peter. He's arrested, seized, put in prison. And look at verse 6. Oh, I love verse 6. Peter, what is he doing again? Sleeping. Out cold. And the description here is showing the full might of Herod against him. Herod has all the power. And Jesus has powerless people. Weak people. Sleeping people. You you see what Luke is showing us here? Who is going to get all the glory here? Is it Peter? No. Look. The whole way the story is told here is to show us that Peter is utterly passive. Did you notice? He's not even sure if it's real. Verse 9. It seems like a dream. It's a vision to him. The Lord has rescued him. Brought him out of prison. But here is one king ruling from heaven who has powerless people. And all they can do, verse 5, is speak to him in prayer. Here is the king who loves and cares for his people. He sends his angel and he rescues. And alongside him, here is one king on earth who has proud strength. So that when his people call out to him for, for help and for peace. And so that they can eat, Herod, verse 20... Turns it into an opportunity for glory all for himself. Friends, Acts chapter 12 is saying to us, look, as the gospel goes out to the ends of the earth, you need to know that all the rulers of the earth cannot save you. They are ultimately only out to save themselves, to increase their power, to get what they can from you for their own puny empires. Only one ruler in all the earth truly loves you. And can truly rescue you. Oh this is a picture of immense love from Christ the King. To his people the church. Napoleon Bonaparte who was a ruler who swept nations before him at the height of his powers. 
as he looked at Christ, came to recognize in Christ a superior glory. Everything in this man astonishes me, he said. His spirit overawes me. His will confounds me. Between him and whoever else in the world, there is no possible term of comparison. The nearer I approach Christ, the more carefully I examine him. Everything about him is above me. Everything remains grand of a grandeur which overpowers. But here's the astonishing thing. Here's what Bonaparte said. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne... And I have all founded empires. But on what did we rest the creations of our genius? All upon force. Jesus Christ founded his kingdom upon love. And at this hour millions of men would die for him. That's what happened to James, isn't it? Here, verse 2. Oh, we don't, we don't know why James is killed. And we don't know why... Peter isn't released initially, put into prison. We don't, we don't know why God chooses in the end to rescue Peter. Now this story is here to show us that the ways of King Jesus with his people are mysterious to us. But if he chooses, and if he wants to, there is nothing that can stand in his way. Nothing. Not swords or squads of soldiers. Did you notice all the details in verses 6 down to 11? It's as if there are just walls and walls and walls. And all of them just fall away and open. Nothing can stand in his way. Not swords or squads of soldiers or chains or sentries or doors or iron gates. Friends, not governments or planning permission. Or city councils, or school head teachers, or council policies, or hotel contracts ever stand in the way of Jesus the King. All he needs, all he needs is powerless people who pray. What is the only truly significant human action we have? Verse 6, verse 5 rather, pray. Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. We've just had this recently, haven't we? Working our way through the book of Acts. We had it a couple of weeks ago in 1 Thessalonians. And it seems to be falling to me as we do this in different ways to highlight the Bible's description of the life of the church as being committed to corporate prayer. And as we do this week by week, I know it's a challenge for us. It's come up so often in sermons, hasn't it, through Acts and Thessalonians. Some of you have kindly and very gently said to me, very winsomely, look, I hear you on corporate prayer, on the prayer meeting. I would love to be at the prayer meeting. I really would, but I just can't because of ABC and so on. And of course, I totally understand, I get it. Not everyone who would like to be there can be there. But here is, friends, here is what Acts is saying to us. Everyone who could be there should be there. See, here in verse 5, here, here is the key to prayer. So that word that comes just before the word prayer, earnest prayer. It, it, it's the idea that what gives rise to the prayer is church need. Not church notices. Church notices never create prayer. 
It's church longing, not church mailchimp emails that generates prayer. That, that word earnest, it means fervently, unremittingly. It's part of the same word that Luke has used in his gospel to talk about Jesus in Gethsemane as he prays. Praying with sweat, falling like drops of blood. Oh, oh, the longing for help, the longing for respite, for relief. And here, verse 5, longing for rescue, for release. I think it is as simple as that, friends. What we long for, we pray for. What we long for, we pray for. And what we long to pray for, we will long to pray for with others. Listen to a man called Don Carson. He wrote a wonderful book called A Call to Spiritual Reformation. Calling the church to reform ourselves. Particularly here in this area of prayer. Here's what he says. I do not write these words to manipulate, to manipulate you. Or to be engendering guilty feelings. But what shall we do? Granted many of us know some individuals who are remarkable prayer warriors. Is it not nevertheless true that by and large we are much better at organizing than we are at agonizing? Is it not true that we are better at administering than interceding? Better at fellowship than fasting? Better at entertainment than worship? Better at theological articulation than we are at spiritual adoration? Better, God help us, at preaching than praying. Here is the challenge, isn't it? The earnestness, the the longing for something to happen. And friends, in the midst of all of this, it's easy, isn't it, to look at this church and think, well, they must have been perfect. What spiritual giants praying together like this. In the midst of this story, I think there is a lovely encouragement for us. Verses 12 and 13. And her encouragement is called Rhoda. It's amazing. This church calling out to God and when God answers their prayer, when God gives them exactly what they're, they're asking for, what do they say to poor Rhoda, these great prayer warriors? You're nuts. <laughs> now, I know we're asking God to do this, but come on. He's not actually going to do it, is he? You're out of your mind. Here they are longing for God and yet not believing that when he acts, he answers prayer. Friends, I read this and thought, I would be exactly like that. That's me. Aren't these people normal? Just like us? They are weak people. Ordinary people. They are powerless people. And all they have is speaking to God, their king in heaven. So here is one way to be king. You have powerless people in your powerful hands and because you are wise and good and because you have the power to rescue them and to release them if you choose isn't Luke saying to us the gospel will spread through the earth like this simply by the weakness of Christ's praying people it is a beautiful picture what do we need Lord the gospel is going to go to the ends of the earth let's organize a campaign let's grow the numbers let's add and add let's work out our strategy No, trust me, says Jesus, and pray. Are you 
Let, let me ask you today, are you prepared for this kind of weakness? Listen to Don Carson again, he says this. We must not equate courage with success, or even youth with success. Do not equate courage or youth with success. I have spent too much time in places like Japan, or in parts of the Muslim world, where courage is not measured on the world stage. Where a single convert is reckoned a mighty trophy of grace. I am grateful beyond words for the spread of churches in organisations like Acts 29. Many of you have heard of them, a great church planting movement. I'm grateful beyond words for them, but I am no less grateful for Baptist ministers like my father. Men who laboured very, very hard for decades and saw little fruit, and many of whom went to prison in the early 1950s. I find no grounds for concluding that the missionaries in Japan in the 20th century were less godly, less courageous, less faithful than the missionaries in what became South Korea with its congregations of tens of thousands. Just as the widow who gave her might may be reckoned to have given more than many multimillionaires, so I suspect at the end of time some ministers in Japan or Yorkshire will receive greater praise on that last day than those who served faithfully in a corner of the world where there was more fruit. Friends, never, ever despise weakness. Never despise this kind of small, powerless, seemingly ineffective way in which Christ works. And as we are weak, and as we pray, Friends, we are going to meet oh so many Herods. The world is full of them. Sometimes the church is full of them. I want us just to look here a little bit more at Herod's pride strength. See, See Peter in his moment of weakness is miraculously delivered by an angel. And the exact opposite happens to Herod. Herod in his moment of triumph struck down by an angel. See, not every suffering believer is rescued. Not everyone is healed. Some die. Some go free. Jesus the King knows what is best. But whatever happens, all his people are in his hand. And at the end of time, whether you die young or die old, at the end you die with Christ. And not every dictator and wicked oppressor is struck down on the spot like Herod. But Luke is showing us here, here is an example of what comes to all who choose to be king in this way. One day you breathe your last and you are cast out from the presence of God and his king forever. Herod is here to warn us about the end. It's kind of a strange story, isn't it? Verse Uh, 20 onwards. Uh, I think this is to do with the famine that has been mentioned back in chapter 11, verse 28. The, The people are hungry and they need peace because they need food. And they know Herod can provide both peace and food. And they are so desperate that they worship him. Verse 22. The voice of a God and not of a man. Look how Herod seems to view himself. Dressing himself in robes like this. Coming out to speak. Do you know that the the Jewish historian Josephus records this exact same event of Herod dying. 
And Josephus says, Herod came out to his throne wearing a garment made wholly of silver, of a texture so wonderful that it shone so brightly in the morning sun that the people hailed him as a god. And upon hearing this, the king did neither rebuke them nor reject their impious flattery. He didn't stop them. He just took it. He accepted it. He reveled in it. Oh friends, some men and women, some men and women try to grasp the stars of heaven and end up instead licking the dust of the earth. It is the very essence of our human pride, isn't it? To take from others what belongs to God alone and to revel in it, to bask in it, to to glory in it, to glory in the glory that is due to God alone. Human power and human glory are so seductive. Oh, how we love them. And sometimes, just sometimes, God humbles one man to warn us all. God humbles a king to warn his world. Do you know that sometimes what God does here with Herod, sometimes he does not just with one man, but with us all, with the world. God has so many ways to humble us. Friends, just think about the coronavirus. Just think about the coronavirus spreading throughout the world. Here we are as a gathering of Christian people. What should our response to it be? In any one thing, God is doing a thousand things, but isn't he at least doing this with the virus? Isn't he saying to us, The control of our lives that we think we have is just an illusion. We are not in control. What should our response be to the virus? To repent. To humble ourselves under God's hand. To recognize that the breath in our bodies is not deserved. It is a mercy. We will all die. The coronavirus has not brought us anything new. It's brought us what we already know more clearly and more quickly than we were expecting. And all the world has to offer is hand washing and fear. The Bible says, doesn't it, perfect love drives out fear. Perfect love expels fear. If you know you are Perfectly loved and in God's hands. It expels fear. What does the world do? It turns it around the exact opposite way. And it says perfect fear drives out love. The world turns it around. Fear drives out love. In all the panic buying that you've seen. People stocking their shelves. Buying toilet roll, hand gel, all the rest of it. Emptying the shelves. How much of that has been for the elderly person on your street down the road? Or for ourselves? Perfect fear has driven out love. Rampant individualism now comes full circle. I must survive. Really? So here's the question for us today, for, for you, for me. Somebody, somebody has looked at Herod and put it like this. What do I do with praise that does not rightly belong to me? What do I do with it? 
When someone thanks you or praises you, I hope it happens, happens a lot here, doesn't it? As people give thanks for each other. Thank you for the food. Thank you for the phone call. Thank you for what you've, what you've done, that gift that you've used. Thank you for it. Do you know how to thank them gratefully? And to say it's fine, you're welcome. But in your heart in that moment to give all the glory to God. It is all from you, Lord, not from me. What, what do I have in my life that might tempt me to think it's all mine? What do you have? Your youth, your sporting ability, your achievements, your intellectual ability, your degrees, your publications, reputation, your looks, your wealth. Uh, I have a friend who very recently uh, was asked to speak to a group of exceptionally wealthy businessmen and women in London last year. Christian businessmen and women. Uh, my friend, it's the kind of thing you can do when you're not wealthy yourself. And my friend, there's a large room, 300 or so people. And my friend said to them, money, money is power. Money buys power. You know that, don't you, you wealthy people? Money makes you a master of the universe. You work in the best offices in the city. You enter the most prestigious boardrooms. And your money makes you feel like a master of the universe. And then my friend said this to him, do you know what I fear for you as Christian businessmen and women? That as you give your money for gospel work, that your Christian giving simply becomes an extension of your mastery. The control you exercise at work is now control you exercise in the kingdom. You decide what ministries flourish and what ministries don't. Who gets support and who doesn't. And do you know what the remedy is? Service. Service. You earn in the boardroom, so make sure you are serving in the camp kitchen as well. Your name is on the company roll of honor for all the money you've brought in, so make sure you serve in a place where no one knows your name as you sweep the floor, and clean the loos, and teach the children. Oh, there are only, only two ways to be king, either to let Jesus be king or to be king myself. The sin of every human being in every age is the sin of Herod, which is just the sin of Adam in the garden on repeat. Kevin DeYoung says that, think, think of everything that springs from the simple confession of John the Baptist. I am not the Christ. Think of everything that flows from that. Here's what it means. This world story is not about me. I am not the master of my fate. You do not exist to make me happy. I am often wrong. I have limits. I need limits. My desires and my feelings are not the be all and end all. It is not wrong to ask me to sacrifice for you. I do not see the whole picture. I do not know the end from the beginning. I am not omniscient. My desires are not laws. I am only a pointer and I am not the point. It's nice, isn't it? I want to finish with these words. I want to give you them from uh, a century ago. James Allen Francis preached a sermon in which he said this about the Lord Jesus our King. He was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30. 
Then for three years he was an itinerant preacher. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never had a family. He never owned a house. He never went to college. He never traveled more than 200 miles from the place where he was born. He never did any one of the things that usually accompany greatness. He had no credentials but himself. He was 33 when the tide of public opinion turned against him. His friends ran away. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves. When he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. Twenty centuries have come and gone and today he stands as the central figure of the human race. I am far from the mark when I say that all the armies that have ever marched, all the navies that have ever sailed, all the parliaments that have ever sat, all the kings that have ever reigned, put together, have not affected the life of man on earth as has this one solitary life. Why? Why? Because Herod grasped at deity, didn't he? Jesus was divine. And yet he humbled himself. Herod killed and caused others to suffer. Christ was killed and allowed himself to suffer. Herod was dressed in royal robes of silver. Christ wore a purple robe of mockery as he walked to his throne of wood and nail. And all of it, all of it he did to be the king who one day will rule and reign. The king who will rule the universe world without end and all of it, all of it with his powerless weak people at his side and in his hands. Amen.